Turn in God's Word today to Acts 15. Acts 15, and we'll pray before we go to the Word. Father, we bless you for causing us to be born again to a living hope, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Help me, Father. I pray that you uh, would help me to preach your word to your people. That being born again, we may be strengthened anew today for life uh, in the trenches, in the battle against the world, the devil, and the flesh. Will you lead us through the word written, read, and preached to the eternal word, in whom is the life and the light of men? Amen. Well, we'll look today at Acts 15, 1 through 5 primarily, but I have here uh, 15, 1 through 12 for a bit of context. Um, so let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts 15, 1 through 12. Remember that Paul and Barnabas are in Syrian Antioch at this point, back with the church there. Um, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order to them to and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, "Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe." And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither of our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Amen. Praise God for His Word. You may be seated. We have arrived at the center of the book of Acts. Uh, I think there's something like 12,000 words on either side of this point. 
Um, so we're come to the center, but also thematically we've come to the center um, that the gospel has gone from Judea to Samaria and has gone into Asia Minor. And uh, this is the last we'll see in the book of the Apostle Peter in this chapter um, from here on out. And, and the rest will focus on Paul and the taking of the gospel to the nations um, through Paul. And thus far, I think the story has been quite grandiose. Um, Really, every, at every point that, in every challenge that the gospel has come up against, uh, the victory has been thunderous. Um, yes, there's been persecution and trial, but all of it has been to the manifest glory of Christ. It's all really been quite a, a, an extraordinary journey. Um, Syrian Antioch has become a successful missionary sending, expanding, multi-ethnic center for Christianity, rivaling or even perhaps surpassing uh, Jerusalem. And Paul, Paul and Barnabas returned home from their first journey um, to Syrian Antioch, and they gave an amazing report of what God had done through them to the Gentiles, through the gospel, and they stay there and, and teach and work among the people of Syrian Antioch. And it, what what better could you ask for than Paul and Barnabas in your church? There, it doesn't get much better than that. It's all beautiful. All is right with the world. Um, Paul has scars. He's been stoned almost to death, but he's back and the gospel's been going forward. And then the enemy switches tactics here. He's been focusing on persecution and now he's focusing on penetration. Uh, he's been focusing on, on direct assault, and now he shifts to infiltration. Division. Division in the church. That's a loaded word, isn't it? Division. Men from the inside of the church stirring up controversy, posing doctrinal conundrums. I mean, the, the, the very idea of division in the body, it just makes your stomach turn, doesn't it? It's just terrible. I mean, persecution, we can kind of rally against that. It stirs up kind of rah-rah, you know, persecution. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But division, disunity, it drains your energy. Think of like a World War I fighter, and he can fight against the enemy with all his strength, and then the Spanish flu comes and just drains him of his energy. Right? Like There's certain internal attacks that just suck the life out of us. I mentioned before, Jesus' strategies are often very much like uh, the martial arts form judo. Winning in combat by using your opponent's weight and strength as weapons against him seems to be the tactic that Jesus uses very often. And uh, Though division and internal strife in the church make us ill, though it drain us of our energy, though it seems at times to be just frivolous and pointless and contrary to the will of Christ, Jesus uses the enemy's own weight and tactics against him. Believe it or not, just as much as he does with persecution. There is a purpose in division in the church. A valuable purpose, an essential purpose. Peace, peace in the church, peace comes through purity. Through pure doctrine. And purity, this side of glory, rarely comes without the painful process of division. 
So let's begin by looking at this issue that arose in Antioch in verse 1. But some of some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. <laughs> That's a stark claim. You cannot be saved. This is a salvation issue from the get-go. What must you do to enter in to the kingdom? You must keep the law. You must, essentially, you must become a Jew to be saved. Notice also in verse 5 in Jerusalem, it even says, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So initially, it's interesting, praise God, even Pharisees have come to claim Christ as Messiah, and yet some of them want to preach Jesus plus. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but you have to, they have to keep the law of Moses. Before we wag our fingers at them, however, uh, how hard is it for us to distinguish our own errors in our own thinking from the truth? Especially perhaps errors rooted deep in our past, perhaps even errors that are, are generational in our history. Think of the, the fallacy, the sunk cost fallacy. If you're investing in the stock market and you invested in this one stock and it's just starting to go downhill and you're so committed to that one being profitable, even though it would actually behoove you to take it out and put it in something that's going up, that one has to work out. I've invested so much time, so much energy into this. I've invested resources into this. That's, that's how we often are with our doctrine, with our misunderstandings. Uh, my, my history, I've invested into this. I've studied it. I've learned it. I've been taught this. I don't want to let it go. It's cost me a lot. So how hard is it to say, you mean I've been wrong this whole time, that my parents and grandparents taught me incorrectly? That this, this is the fiber of my cultural heritage and you're telling me it's mistaken. Like that's difficult to do. That's a tough pill to swallow. So, of course, to the Jews who'd been raised in this, of course, the Gentiles, uh, the, the converts should become Jews. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Nothing changes, really. We just add Jesus in and they, they need to conform and, and think of all the cultural problems that are going to arise if they, if they don't accommodate. How can you be saved if you're not a part of the people of God? And how can you be a part of the people of God if you're not circumcised? So at the level of the human heart, what's going on here in this passage is really what we're all inclined to do is we want to lay claim to some degree of self-righteousness, however small. We want just a piece of self-righteousness. We want to be able to say, I contribute to my salvation. We wouldn't say this out loud, but how I contribute to my salvation just a little bit. Certainly Christ, but Christ plus Christ plus works of the law, Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus dietary laws. Um, anything else would open the door to, to licentiousness, wouldn't it? But in saying those things, they are really challenging the most basic element of the Christian message. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Christ alone. So anyone who preaches Christ plus anything, or for that matter, Christ minus anything, preaches another gospel. Which Paul says in Galatians, they should be anathema if they preach another gospel. Christ plus is a damnable gospel. The simple, beautiful, life-changing, soul-enlivening message of the good news is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul and Barnabas obviously won't stand uh, for this, for this uh, false teaching, this other gospel message. Luke tells us in verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Luke uses that phrase often. No small, no small (laughs) dissension and debate. In other words, they had a dust up over this. It got heated. But perhaps maybe they should have just let this one go. You know, Paul and Barnabas, for the sake of unity, just let it slide. Just get along. And in the coming weeks, we'll talk more specifically about um, grace and law and and justification and all of those relevant things. Um, And also, I did a 28-part series on Galatians that covers that in detail. Um, But this week, I kind of want to take a step back and ask a bigger picture question. Uh, Really, the question I've been asking throughout and interpreting Acts is, what is King Jesus doing here? What is his point in all this? What, what is the risen, ascended, reigning, church-building Christ accomplishing? I mean, everything is advancing along so well. And this division, this infighting, this controversy has to be outside of Christ's will, right? It has to be a blight on his reputation. And if, if surely if this was a good church, a faithful church, a loving church, they wouldn't be arguing about doctrine. They would be loving each other. They would be moving on to more important things, setting their differences aside and, and caring for people. Why get all fired up over doctrine? Why does Jesus allow this to happen? The devil, the devil loves division in the church. Um, Even more, he loves to twist the gospel. He loves to turn the gospel of free grace into a gospel of self-righteousness and self-reliance without us noticing. He twists, he's subtle. He loves us to rely on our own merit instead to earn the favor of God. And so here at, at Antioch, he picks up a steel wedge, he picks up his sledge, and he drives the wedge into a church that was once whole and causes a fissure. Now, what does Jesus do about that? I say he sits in his lawn chair, drinks lemonade, while his enemy plays right into his hand. Jesus, as odd as it may may seem, allows a wedge to form, and I, I dare say allows and uses division for his own purposes. I've seen three purposes. The first is that it opens a door to fruitful discussion and debate. 
as painful as it can be, um, debate, controversy, and friction serves a valuable purpose in the church. I mean, a, a brief grant glance through church history tells us this. The most pivotal moments have arisen in response to controversy that have opened the door to discussion and debate. And in fact, we see that Christ preserves his church not from strife and division, but through strife and division. For example, the Council of Nicaea responding to Arianism. The Council of Chalcedon responding to Monophysitism, which is so hard to say. The Reformation, uh, uh, you know, an arm closer to our age and day, uh, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, whatever it is, it's a response. Truth comes becomes more clear as a response to error. The net result is ultimately clarity, clarity on the gospel, and that's what we want. So could it be that Jesus actually wants his church to wrestle through the nature of the gospel? For every generation to confront challenges to the gospel in order to strengthen our resolve and help us define clearly what the good news is. And really, that's what we see happening here. Verse 2, again, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And even at the Jerusalem Council, verse 7 says, there was much debate. The controversy drove the church together to solve the issue, to get doctrinal clarity, doctrinal precision. Acts 15 is kind of the first church council um, of sorts. It's it's not an ecumenical council. There's only two cities represented. Um, But it's kind of the first church council. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, it says in verse 2, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the uh, elders about this question. They were interested in answering this question. And remember, this is a 300-mile walk, one way. They are serious about answering this question. Then in verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Let's figure this out. So the controversy drove the church at Antioch to say, we need answers. We need a clear decision. Which leads us to the next purpose for controversy and division within the church. Discussion and debate ideally arrive at conclusions. Questions are good, but they don't do us a lot of good if we don't arrive at conclusions. Division, controversy, from those things arise um, essential doctrinal distinction and definition. So that's the next point, is that it serves to give us doctrinal distinction and definition. Um, Darkness hates the light. Confusion um, adores ambiguity. Uh, Machen in Christianity and Liberalism, which was written in the 20s, always say this is mandatory reading for Christians. <laughs> it's one of those books where I, you, you're underlining so much you wonder what's the point of underlining. <laughs> um, here's one of mine that I underlined. 
clear-cut definition of terms in religious matters, bold-facing of the logical implications of religious views, is by many persons regarded as an impious proceeding. Light may seem at times to be impertinent, an impertinent intruder, but it is always beneficial in the end. The type of religion which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meanings, or shrinks back from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. In the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. We have to be willing to stand and fight for the gospel. To go through the sometimes tedious and arduous process of making distinctions and definitions for the sake of the clarity of the gospel. I use those words tedious and arduous intentionally. (laughs) We're going to General Assembly next month. And much of that is tedious and arduous. We like to think of battle as this great, great thing. And much of what we'll be doing is sitting in a large room, listening to men at microphones talk because they like to hear themselves talk. But ultimately, we'll come to some decisions. We have to make decisions and distinctions for the sake of the clarity of the gospel. And that's the fight. Paul warns the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. 28 through 30, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From among you, speaking twisted things. The devil is subtle, he's crafty, and he's skilled at his craft. Remember how he tempted Jesus with Scripture, right? Which is why careful definition is important and why we have to fight vigorously for clarity. Jude 3 or in verse 3 of Jude, I, f- I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a once for all delivered faith. It's a, it has specific content. It was passed along from the apostles to the saints. Similarly, Paul says in Second Timothy 2.2, to Timothy, in what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men will be able to teach others also. So this apostolic gospel, this apostolic deposit has content and that has to be preserved. However, we have to be careful. We have to be wise. Paul goes on again in Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 through 26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, So we think fighting, right? Well, quarrels and fighting are similar. Let's fight. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
Notice what do Paul and Barnabas seem to care about the most in this passage? Spitting vitriol and ad hominem attacks against their enemies. You know, can you believe those guys? What they're saying? What what a bunch of stooges, right? They go to Samaria and and, and Phoenicia and man, stooges. No, they're overjoyed about what God is doing among the Gentiles. He's bringing them salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, gossiping about the Judaizers. (laughs) No, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all God had done with them. And even in the assembly, what does their speech consist of in verse 12? And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. That's what they care most about. God is bringing salvation to the Gentiles. Praise be to the name of God. Their interest is not winning a doctrinal debate for the sake of winning. Their interest interest is in preserving the integrity of the true, saving, apostolic, once-for-all delivered gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been saving thousands of Gentiles over the past number of months for them. So distinctions and definitions are essential if we're to preach the true gospel. We also must adorn the true gospel with conduct becoming the gospel. So it's unity and truth, peace and purity. Faithfulness strives with urgency for both. Which leads to our final purpose for controversy and division in the church, which is peace through purity. Peace comes through purity. Uh, If you take membership vows in this church or vows for church office, you take a vow to study the peace and purity of the church. Study the peace and purity of the church. Study meaning apply absorbed and thoughtful attention to the peace and purity of the church. And we all want peace. We long for peace. We long for unity. So... When sometimes when we may have a red flag going off, we may just sweep it aside. Let it go under the rug in the name of, of preserving unity. Now, honestly, sometimes I think that's okay. It's okay to let some things go. It's okay not to address every issue or every annoyance. Right? Isn't that what it means to bear with one another, put up with one another, Thankfully, you all put up with me quite well. You bear with one another in kindness, meekness, and patience so as not to stir up division and strife. But there comes a time when an issue threatens the core tenets of the gospel or even when it threatens the the preaching of the whole counsel of God that it's time to, to take up arms to fight for the truth of the gospel. And it's at that point that the relationship between peace and purity becomes fairly complex because we're not just ignoring purity for the sake of peace. 
There's the shortcut. The path of least resistance is to bypass purity in the name of peace. And then we say, yay, look at us. Look how united we are. Meanwhile, you don't have true unity, true Christian unity, in the absence of the gospel. It's a false unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism means there is content to the gospel. The Christian faith is grounded in that content. Oneness does not come from saying we are one. Oneness comes from being united to a single vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. It is the faith once for all delivered, the true gospel. That's the only way to be united with the vine and with one another. Division, division is not always a bad thing, as painful as it may be. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order to show that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And isn't that what the whole debate here is really about? Who is genuine among you? Who's a genuine believer? For the Pharisees and Judaizers, it's those who are circumcised who are true believers. For Paul, it's a question of the gospel, a question of the faith. Do you believe the true gospel? Dr. Sproul was once asked, why should we engage in debate since it seems to cause division in the church? What message does that send to those outside the church? His response is really good. Classic Sproul. God forbid that we should ever debate the truth of the gospel, that we should ever follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul who debated the matter every day in the marketplace and who wrote all these epistles to correct error and distortions of the truth of God. Weren't those letters the Apostle wrote to the Ephesians, to the Galatians, and to the Colossians divisive? Nothing divides like truth. Nothing divides like Jesus. But we have this idea that the only real sin that you can have is dividing a church. Well, there are churches that need to be divided. And they need to be divided not only over minor matters, not over peccadillos. The only way I ever say the word peccadillos if I'm quoting Sproul. But over substantive issues of the truth of God. And our Lord, when he was asked by Pontius Pilate, what are you about? He said, I came to bear witness to the truth. And those who are of the truth, hear my voice. And then the next thing Jesus said, but I sure don't want to divide anybody over the truth. Some would say the worst thing you can say is that truth is important. But when you do that, what happens then is that truth gets slain in the streets and anything goes. That's a powerful response. It leads us to the crux of the whole matter. What we really need as fallen sinners is Jesus. We need to be made right with God, and we cannot be made right with God on our own merits. 
We need the rebellion of our, of our grievous sin to be forgiven. We need a righteousness with which we can stand before a holy God without cowering in fear. We need our unworthiness to be replaced with the worthiness of another. How can we possibly obtain all of that but by the faith of the Lord Jesus preached to us in the word of the gospel, the true gospel, the once for all delivered gospel? I like the way Paul sums up the gospel in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So what possible value could there be in division and controversy in the church? When it's so painful, when it's so life-sucking, well, it opens the door for discussion and debate on matters of substance, which leads to important distinctions and definitions, which in turn leads to the purity of the gospel, which when believed brings us together under one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I'll leave you with a a word from Calvin. The name of peace is indeed plausible and sweet. But cursed is that peace which is purchased with so great loss that we suffer the doctrine of Christ to perish, by which alone we grow together into godly and holy unity. Amen.